And Father, I want to thank you um, for this time that you've given us, Lord, um, to, to look at your word and to, to join together, Lord, as, as Christians, Lord. Um, and um, yeah, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us um, during this time, Lord. Uh, may you uh, help us to understand your word um, and help us to see you in it, Father. And we pray for PT, Lord. We pray for him and Suzanne, Lord, um, that as they're on uh, away, Lord, that they would be able to get some rest, Lord, that he would um, be able to be um, fully just restored, Lord. May you be healing him and restoring him and Suzanne as well, Father, and that they would come back refreshed and energized. But yeah, tonight, Father, we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, guide us. Um, guide me in, in the words that I speak, Lord. May they, may they be of you. Uh, and may you um, yeah, help us to be attentive to what it is you have to say to us today. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, just to start off, once a week, I get to uh, teach a one-to-one drum lesson in, a primary, in primary schools, well, in a primary school, rather, uh, not too far from me. Um, I do this once a week on a Friday. And last Friday, I collected one of the kids um, from his classroom, as I usually do. And as we were walking to the music room, I asked him if he was looking forward to half term, which is this week. Uh, and he said he was happy, especially because it meant not being in school for Valentine's Day. Uh, and he said he was happy because he wouldn't have to deal with kids coming up to him and saying, oh, so who's your Valentine and who have you given a card to? And it's, it's, it's quite funny because this kid, uh, he is uh, in year six, which means he's 10 or 11. Yeah, about 10 or 11. And he already dreads the day of February 14th. He even just dreads the very thought of it. And Valentine's Day, which is today, so happy Valentine's Day, it is very much uh, like Marmite to some. Some people hate it and some people love it. Um, but whether you celebrate it or not, uh, there's no denying the popularity and the influence that it has on our culture. Check this out from a, uh, an author. I was reading an article uh, today, or the other day rather. Uh, he said this, Today an estimated one billion Valentine cards are sent each year, making Valentine's Day the second largest card-sending holiday of the year following Christmas. So, it has had its an impact on our culture. But you may be glad to hear that today's message is not primarily about Valentine's Day or relationships or romance, although there will be some principles that we look at which are applicable, um, but it's kind of hard to avoid the fact that Valentine's Day often causes us to think about relationships and romance uh, or the lack of them. Uh, and although, as I say, we don't, we're not going to be focusing on that today, let me give you just a few free Three points, because I mean, we could literally spend hours on the subject, but let me just give you kind of three points to think about. Uh, one is this, single people, maximize your singleness. Most of us will only be single for a period of time and maximize it. Don't just waste it, maximize it. Singleness is not a curse. It is, can be used as a gift and it is an opportunity, just as marriage is also a gift and an opportunity. So single people, while you're single, maximize the opportunities that that gives you and married people number two remember the purpose of marriage is jesus he's the cent- center of marriage G- marriage is about jesus it's meant to point to jesus if your marriage is missing jesus then it's missing a very key component married people your marriage is not just about you and it's not just about your spouse it is ultimately about jesus and then number three, the greatest love 
you can experience is non-romantic. The greatest love that you can experience is non-romantic. As we go through the Bible, the Bible tells us that God loves us and the love that he loves us with, there is no comparison to anything else. There is no love greater than his love for us and there is no greater love we can experience than his love, which is a non-romantic love. It's something far greater. So those are just three things to think about. Okay, just three things to think about and ponder over Valentine's Day. But let's actually get to what we're looking at today. We're taking a detour from 2 Samuel. So we've been going through the book of 2 Samuel, and we're now going to be taking a slight detour just for today. And what we're going to go for, we're going to go from 2 Samuel, we focus on the life of King David, and now we're going to, fo- we're going to fast forward hundreds and hundreds of years to the time of the early church. So in terms of where we are in history, Jesus has died for the sins of the world. He has risen Again, he has ascended into heaven and sent his disciples out to spread the gospel. And we'll be looking at the last chapter of Philippians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Philippi. And this is his closing address and instruction to the Philippians. And this is what we're going to read in chapter 4. So you do have the sheets with you, I believe. There should be some sheets on the tables, or if you do have a Bible, do grab them. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation, um, so slightly different from the one we normally use. But it says this, and we're just going to read through, and then we're going to begin to unpack it bit by bit. So it says this. Let me lower it down. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and long for my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the law, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, 
when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from, oh, this is a great name, isn't it? Epaphroditus, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The chapter, which we just read, chapter 4, is in essence, it's kind of split up into two sections. And the first part is full of instruction. And there are some, some important things that Paul is, is calling the Philippians to live out. And as we'll look at, we'll find that Christ calls us to live out these very same things as well. And the second section isn't heavy on, inst- on instruction at all, but rather is full of encouragement. It's full of thanksgiving, and, but it also gives us the tool and the means to live out this great calling. So let us start from the beginning, when it says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Church, we are called to be family. The affection that Paul has for the church in Philippi could not be clearer. He says, my brothers, my beloved whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, he has genuine love for them. And can the same be said of us? Are we invested and committed to a church, a fellowship of believers whom we can love as family? And it's amazing, when we really think about, remember, think about, especially on today like Valentine's Day, our culture has so sexualized the area of love that we often neglect the impact that friendship and community can have. Single people, you don't, you don't have to be alone. Not only is Christ with you always, but he has also called you into his family. We can become so consumed of thinking about finding a spouse that we miss out on the graces God gives us in Christian fellowship as part of his family. And what does he call his family to do? Because he doesn't just call us to be family, but then he calls us to then go out and do things, to, to do things as a family. And the one, thing, one of the things that he calls us to do as a family and as individuals is to stand firm in the Lord. Now the Greek word for stand firm, or some translations will say stand fast, is steko, which means to be stationary to persevere, to stand fast. And we are called to stand firm. That means to be unmoved from our current position, to be planted in the place and remain there. 
and the next two words are so important because if we get the next two words when we completely miss what Paul is saying we're not called to stand firm in our opinions we're not called to stand firm in our sin we're not called to stand firm in our feelings in our traditions in our culture in our preferences we are called to stand firm in something or rather someone very specific and that is Jesus. He says, stand firm in the Lord. He says, stand firm in Jesus. When the world around you is calling to compromise, stand firm in Jesus. When temptation you is calling you into sin, stand firm in Jesus. When doubts enter your mind, stand firm in Jesus. When all around you is falling apart, Stand firm in Jesus. And when you're betrayed, abandoned, hurt, in despair, stand firm in Jesus. But we may ask the question, then why? Why? Why should I stand firm in Jesus? And that is what the therefore is there. That very first word in that verse is therefore. If you were to look at the preceding verses, it would say, it says this in Philippians 3 verse 20 and 21, the two verses before chapter 4, Paul writes this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Jesus says, look, Jesus says, I want you to stand firm in me because, number one, if, you've, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ, he says, number one, I'm your saviour, stand firm in me. I've provided you citizenship in a heavenly, everlasting kingdom, so stand firm in me. And then he, all Jesus says to us, he's, he's transforming us into something glorious, from something lowly to something glorious. So stand firm in me. And then that last thing where it says all things are subject to him. All things are under him. All things are subject to him. And Jesus says this to us. He says, look, all things are subject to me. So stand firm in me because I love you, because I'm your saviour, because of what I've done for you, for how I'm changing you, for what I'm calling you to, because I am above all things and there is nothing more precious than me. Therefore, stand firm in Jesus, but don't just stand firm alone. Stand firm together. Look at the next two verses, and we get these very cool names, which I did practice beforehand, but then have completely forgotten how to say them. So I'll try again. I entreat Euodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the West of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Christ calls us to labour side by side together for the sake of the gospel. And some, have you seen this text, some form of disagreement had developed between two of the women in the church and we don't know the nature of the disagreement. But Paul calls others in the church to help them to seek reconciliation and agree on the most important thing, which is the Lord. Remember what it says, agree in the Lord. It is true, unfortunately, we cannot share unity with everybody who calls themselves Christians. We cannot sacrifice the truth of Christ 
just for the sake of unity. And as I said, remember, Paul calls them to agree in Jesus. Can we agree in what Jesus says? Can we agree in what Jesus is calling us to? Can we agree at who Jesus claims to be and what he says is right and what he says is wrong? Can we agree in Jesus? And then if so, then let us labour together. God has work for us to do. And I like Paul's use of the word labour. Because it reminds us that ministry, in whatever form, is often exactly that. It's, it's work, it costs us, it is difficult, it requires sacrifice, and yet at the same time, in the light of the joy and the reward that Christ gives us, as he works through us, how could we say no? We don't labour to receive God's grace, we don't labour to receive salvation but rather because we've already been saved how can we not follow Uh, a missionary david livingston once wrote this in his journal people talk of the sacrifice i've made in spending so much of my life in africa can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paying back a small part of the great debt owing to our god which we can never repay Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthy activity? The consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice, say rather, it is a privilege. He calls us to work together side by side, not for our own kingdom or our own glory, but for his. He calls us to work together for something greater than ourselves, Jesus and his gospel. This is not just the purpose of the church, it's not just the purpose of us as Christians, it's also the purpose of marriage. Two people laying down their lives and agendas for the common purpose of working side by side together for Jesus and his gospel. That was God's original intent for marriage. And it's amazing how we have distorted marriage and how, how we've distorted it so much and what it has become in our lives and culture. But Christ calls us to something far greater and when we see a true christian marriage lived out in a true christian christ exalting way that is something truly beautiful and paul then continues with another instruction which is both encouraging and yet challenging at the same time and he says this in the next verse verse four he says this rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. For me personally, out of the whole passage, this for me is the most challenging. Rejoice in the Lord. Okay, okay, I think I think I get that. I'm I'm cool with that. Okay, when we look at the word rejoice, when we look at it in in the Greek, it kind of means to be cheerful, joyful, calmly happy. Calmly happy. Paul calls us to be cheerful in the Lord. 
Or another way of expressing it, we're called to feel or show great joy and delight in the Lord. Okay, I, I, let's look back. I kind, of, I kind of get that, but it is the next unavoidable word which changes everything, and that word is always. It is amazing the powers of word, how one word can completely change and enhance what came before. That word, always. Rejoice in the Lord, always. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord sometimes, or when things are going well, rejoice in the Lord, or when you feel like it. He says always. That means always. Always means always. When things are difficult, rejoice in the Lord. And when things are going well, rejoice in the Lord. When I'm feeling depressed, rejoice in the Lord. And when I'm feeling joyful, rejoice in the Lord. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, rejoice in the Lord. And when I'm feeling confused, rejoice in the Lord. When I'm feeling lost, rejoice in the Lord. When, fill in that blank, rejoice in the Lord. For most of us, if not all of us, this isn't something that comes naturally. The fact that Paul repeats the challenge, it kind of confirms this. He doesn't want us to miss the importance of rejoicing in the Lord. So he repeats it, he says rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And as soon as we hear this, certain objections come into our minds. So, so together, let's briefly wrestle with some of those objections. One objection is often this. Okay, it's, it's easy for you to say. You don't know my situation. If only you knew the pain I'm going through, the betrayal I've experienced, the hurt, the loss. And we can be so quick with our objections that we forget who's writing to us. Ultimately, we know it's the Lord speaking through Paul, but it is Paul that the Lord has chosen to pen this part of Scripture which adds weight to his statement because Paul is accustomed to suffering. He knows what it means to suffer. In his second letter to the Corinthians, there's one moment where he has to defend his credibility as an apostle and he says this in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 28, he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And I am talking like a madman with far great labours, with far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with once with wads. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness and danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Man, what a resume for suffering. Paul's like, man, if you guys are suffering, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he's like, this is how I have suffered. And when Paul calls us to rejoice, he knows what it's like to do so in the midst of suffering. Even as he writes these, ver- ver- these, these pages, this letter in Philippians, the very words he is writing, he does it while he's in chains. 
Paul knows what it means to suffer. So when he calls us to this, he, he knows what it's like to suffer and yet to still try and live out that call to rejoice in the Lord always. And not only does Paul know what it means to suffer, but Jesus knows as well. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer but not only that, Jesus chose to suffer. How many of us would choose to suffer, to enter suffering? Well, Jesus chooses to suffer for us. It says this in Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, a prophecy about Jesus who was to come and die for us. It says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men, sorry, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Essentially those are quite big words, but think of it this way. Our, he was pierced for our sin. He was pierced for our wrongdoing. He was crushed for the wrong things that we have done and thought. And God's judgment that was deservedly meant for us was then brought upon him so that by his very wounds we could have peace and be healed. And then the, very, uh, the next verse in that verse 6 says, All we, that means all of us, every one of us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So here's us, we like sheep have run away, we've gone astray, we've turned our back on God. And yet listen to the second part of that verse, and the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, God has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, the sin and the shame of us all has been laid on Jesus. Because of his suffering, we will always have a reason to rejoice. Because through his suffering we receive forgiveness and reconciliation to God himself and we receive that gift simply by putting our faith and trust in him but there's one other thing to note about the text that we've just read as well which is this what this text doesn't mean is that we ignore the pain we're experiencing We don't need to put on a fake smile or feel like we always have to be smiling all the time, just kind of happy, happy. We know this through the rest of Scripture, that there is a time to mourn. There is a time to weep. Only a few verses prior, Paul is in tears over those who have declared themselves as enemies of Jesus. The shortest and one of the most profound scriptures in the whole Bible is this. Jesus wept. Jesus, his friend Lazarus, has died in that situation. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead, but he still weeps. He still mourns over the loss of his friend. And this is the beauty of the challenge. Paul doesn't say rejoice in your situation. 
He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstance. And he, even, he doesn't even just say just to say the word rejoice. He doesn't just say the word rejoice, but there is a second part to that, which is rejoice in the Lord, and that is the key. Your situation may be dark and it may be painful with little reason to rejoice, but there is always a reason to rejoice in God. And there's a beautiful song by the band All Sons and Daughters called A Reason to Sing. And, and the, kind of the verses in the song kind of wrestle with suffering and with doubt. But then in the final chorus, the lyrics go like this, I need a reason to sing. I need a reason to sing. I need to know that you're still holding the whole world in your hands. And that is a reason to sing. And then the next track follows on and it says this in the next track, I will sing, sing, sing to my God and my King for all else fades away. And I will love, and I will love, love with this heart that you've made for you've been good always. Despite the suffering around us, there is always a reason to rejoice in Christ. And it is this rejoicing in the midst of suffering which will not only carry us through but also becomes an incredible witness to the world around. When we acknowledge we are hurting and in pain and we're honest about that hurt, we're honest about that pain and yet we continue to trust God, we continue to remain firm in God, we continue to enjoy God. It's like, it's like, like we get a giant megaphone has been put in front of, our, of ourselves and it's as if, the, in front of our lives and it's as if the following words are shouted out from the rooftops for all to hear and the words... Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Paul is a man whose life screams this out. It screams out, Jesus is enough. In the second part of this chapter, which we just read, we read the verses from verse 11 to 12, we saw this. Paul saying this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, and this is from verse 11, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Church, we are called to be content in every situation. And from the preceding verses and the ones we just read, it appears Paul is, is specifically referring to physical and material needs. There are moments in life where we are called to have a holy discontentment, right? For example, with sin in our lives, we're not called to be content about the sin in our lives. But when it comes to the area of physical and material needs or possessions, he calls us to be content whether we have plenty or little. And it's amazing because we often get those switched around, don't we? We often are content with our sin, but we are discontent with the circumstances around us or the material possessions around us. And Christ is completely obvious. He says, no, 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 do not be content with your sin in your life, but rather just be, be content with the material things in your life. And these verses completely speak against and completely demolish the idea of the prosperity gospel which teaches that God just wants you rich and healthy. 
And uh, this prosperity gospel tells us to be discontent with a lack of physical or material wealth, whereas Paul says to be content in all circumstances. And he acknowledges that there will be be times where we have plenty and times where we have little. Jesus' purpose for our life is not just that we would be be rich and healthy. He has a greater plan and that plan will often involve suffering. And I think, if we were to really think about this idea of contentment, I think it is actually something that can be applied to relationships as well. And think about it, it's, it's, it's thinking about singleness. It's not wrong to desire marriage, but it is wrong to idolise it. And so often we become so fixated, so consumed with finding or meeting someone that we miss out on the opportunities God gives us as single people. And it, it took me years and years to realise, and I still wrestle with it. It's only really when I was at uni, there was this, this, this time when I was at uni, I'd just come out of a relationship and I was was sitting down with a friend and I turned to him and I said, all these years, I spent all this time, all this energy wanting to meet someone, to find someone and I still find myself in the same place I started. Imagine if I'd taken the same energy, the same passion, the same drive and poured it out into knowing Jesus. I would still be in the same place romantically but I would know him so much more. So maximize your singleness. Be content in your singleness until God calls you into marriage. And for most of us, it will be a season. But let us not waste that season. And likewise, married people, be content in your marriage and maximize it for Christ. As we mentioned, if there's sin in your marriage, then that's something you shouldn't be content with. That needs to be something you need to be working on. We shouldn't be content in that, but we shouldn't be at the point where we're looking over the fence imagining to be with somebody else. That is sin. That may be something our culture encourages and and our culture even says is inevitable, but God says something completely different. He doesn't say it's inevitable. He says it's sin. He says when you are married, when you enter into that covenant, it is meant for life. And we're called not to look over the fence, but rather we are called to invest and love each other and work to that common goal of Christ. And he continues on. And, and in, in, in those verses we just read about Paul's contentment, there is a repeated key phrase. He uses in just those two verses, he uses it twice, And that phrase is this, I have learned. He repeats it more than he repeats it again. So he says it twice, he says, I have learned. And this tells me two things about the area of contentment. Contentment doesn't come naturally. If it came naturally, it wouldn't be something that we would have to learn, right? It wouldn't be something that Paul has to learn. He says, I have learned this. And then the second thing, contentment is something that can be learned. And that gives me hope because I am so very often so far from living out that call to contentment. Contentment can be learned and there is a secret to contentment. The answer is hidden But it is an answer Paul has learned and and Paul has plenty of experience of being in need and also being in plenty. 
And what is that secret? And I think the answer is in the next verse, which is, says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's amazing how, how, how many times that verse has been taken completely out of context as a kind of means to, I just do whatever I like. Be like, yeah, I can do all things through, through, through him who strengthens me. Okay, 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 that's not really the context of which Christ is kind of talking about, okay? Yes, through Christ, we can really do anything, but it doesn't mean we should do everything. But rather, it gives us encouragement for when God calls us to do the impossible because... We know when we're following him, he's going he's gonna to follow it up. He's going to enable us to fulfill the impossible thing he's calling us to. But coming back to the idea of contentment, the secret is Jesus. How can Paul be content in all circumstances? He can be content through him who strengthens Paul, and that's Jesus. Remember, through Jesus we can all things. Or we can do all things through Him who strengthens me, and that comes straight after that that area of contentment. I mean, come on, surely He is calling us to that. He says that you can be content through Christ who strengthens you, who makes all things possible. The secret is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. A bigger house isn't the answer. Another spouse isn't the answer. A better job isn't the answer. Another church isn't the answer. More money isn't the answer. A better body isn't the answer. The answer is Jesus. And Paul had come to learn that Jesus is enough. And he confirms that yet again, just in the next few verses, in verse 19, where he says this, And my God... My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Let me read it again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And for that he deserves all glory forever and ever. Jesus knows what we need, and he promises to supply. Look at that promise. Again, look at it. My God will. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, he doesn't say not, he doesn't say, he doesn't say I might, he doesn't say God potentially, he doesn't say um, oh, God might after he's fooled about it, he doesn't say, or if you've done enough stuff, then God will. It simply just says he will. That is a promise. And as Paul's writing this, he's writing it to Christians and he says, my God will supply. God knows what you need and when you need it and he promises to supply. Which means if he hasn't supplied it, you mustn't need it. Trust him. He truly is enough because of this truth. Because the God who subjects all things to himself also promises to supply and strengthen us. We have no need to fear and we have no need to be anxious. Right at the back of the command to rejoice, always Paul gives another instruction which is just as challenging but it's also just as life-giving and it is something which Paul himself wrestles with as well. In verse 4 we read this, remember, rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's kind of a pretty cool thought, but we won't start, uh, develop that today. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Um, when we're reading through this text, and, and often when we come to Scripture, sometimes we, we often gloss it over certain parts, and we can quickly go through them because we kind of already heard them before, but we, we can easily miss just the radical nature of what Paul is saying. And, it, and it, surely it must stir up in this, our response which says, come on Paul, really? Not only do I have to rejoice in the Lord always, but I have to not be anxious about anything? Like, surely I could be anxious about some things. And Paul's like, nope. And what about, what, about, what about this? Can I be anxious about this? Nope. And what about this? Nope. Anything really does mean anything. But praise God, he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, do not be anxious about anything, which is a beautiful command. But he then not only tells us why we shouldn't be anxious, but then he also shows us how to fight anxiety. Remember in that verse we just read in Corinthians when he's listing out his sufferings and one of those things is there is anxiety he feels because he's worried about the churches. He's worried about other Christians. That develops in Paul and anxiety. Even Paul at times wrestled with anxiety. So here when he gives us his command he's like look I know what it's like to be anxious but Christ calls us to something better. And he says this And this is kind of the starting point for Paul. Just before he says, do not be anxious, look at what he says. Before he gives the command, he says this, the Lord is at hand. That comes to us, the Lord is at hand, and then he follows it up by do not be anxious about anything. He reminds us that because of Jesus, we don't have to be anxious. Because the one who, remember, subjects all things to himself is with us right now. He is present with us in our situations and circumstances and one day he promises to return to gather us to himself. But then he gives us practical tools for fighting anxiety. When we feel anxious, We're called not to run away from God, but rather to run toward him. The tool to fighting anxiousness is prayer. Side by side with not being anxious about anything is praying in everything. We're called to go to God about anything and everything, no matter how small or big, no matter what is making us anxious, he tells us to bring it to him. And when we do this, he, he, well, what, and he, he gives us essentially, he says when we come in to him in prayer, he kind of gives us essentially three kind of different forms of prayer. So look, and he, I mean, he's really getting quite practical down to really practical things that we can do. He doesn't just say, pray, but then he says that pray and don't forget to, to pray in this way. And the first thing he says is he gives us three forms of prayer. The first word is just a general word for prayer, which is simply us talking to God. The second word uh, is translated as supplication. 
is when we make a request, when we make a plea, a petition before God. It is the action of asking or begging for something earnestly and humbly. And that third word, thanksgiving, kind of explains itself. We thank God for who he is and for what he's done. So when you're tempted to feel anxious, as we all will do at some point, how will you respond? Will you talk to God, revealing your heart, making your request whilst giving thanks? Or will you retreat and turn to someone or something else? When we turn to God in prayer, there is a result. It's kind of like a cause and response. And it's revealed in the next verse where it says this in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is a peace that belongs to God. Not to anybody else, it belongs to him. And this peace surpasses all understanding. And it is so great, it is beyond our comprehension. And this peace points us to Jesus and is able to protect us. It is able to guard us. It guards our hearts and it guards our very minds, which is often where where anxiety strikes first. Our heart and emotions begin to despair and in our minds we become so consumed that we we can't seem to see past the problem and yet God offers us peace, a peace which protects our very hearts and minds. And I think often we, we, we wonder why we miss the latter. Why aren't we experiencing God's peace? And I think it is often because we skip the part before. We fail to come to him in prayer. And thus we fail to experience the peace that he is waiting and willing to give us. So let us fight against anxiety with the intimacy of prayer with Christ. Back to the verses in Philippians, as Paul brings this letter to a close, he wants to address another thing and he wants to address our thought life. He wants to address, what do you think about? Verse 8 says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable and whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Are the things that you spend most of your time thinking about on this list? Or is your thought life consumed by that which is untrue? That which is dishonourable, unjust, unpure, disgusting, uncommendable, void of excellence and nothing worthy of praise. And we could spend hours looking at these, these different things we're called to meditate on, we're called to think about. And it's a great list to keep coming back to. There's so much there that we can keep coming back to, but let's just take a brief look at the first one. Whatever is true, 
Do you choose to meditate on truth or lies? And a good place to start is to answer the question, how do I know what's truth? And Jesus said this to his disciples in the Gospel of John. In in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 31, he says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, that, that word abide means to remain. Maybe even thinking back to that, the idea of stand firm. It's not the same word, but it does have similar connotations to it. It means to abide, to be planted, to remain in, to dwell in. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us that there is a truth despite what the world may say around us that you can make up your own truth or there is no truth. Jesus clearly claims, clearly comes and he clearly says no, you're wrong, there is truth, there is something which is right, there is something which is wrong, there is a truth and that truth is not found ultimately in ourselves or in the world around us but it is found in him, it is found in Jesus. And as we abide in him, in his word, the Bible, our eyes are open to that truth. And that truth, it leads us to freedom. So if you want to think about truth, the Bible is a great place to start. And the opposite of truth are lies. And it's amazing, we have Jesus and his word And he says that my word is truth. And on the other hand, we have his enemy. We have Satan, who is known as the father of lies. Paul calls us not to meditate on lies, but we are called to meditate on truth. And if we're honest, it's so often easy to believe and meditate on lies without even thinking about it. And that's why he continually gives us his word because his word challenges us. It it often rebukes us, but then it also leads us to life. Because in the world around us, there is is not truth being preached, but there is distortion and lies. And we can only begin to realise that when we come to his words. So are we choosing to meditate on truth or meditate on lies? And I was trying to think of maybe a couple of examples and because it is Valentine's Day, thinking about examples kind of related to the area of relationships. I only came with a couple, but, but think about these common lies which we can easily kind of give into, which kind of the world can easily preach, which is this. Well, one of them is this. You cannot be complete without a spouse. You cannot be complete without being in a relationship. Whereas we know that actually when we come to Scripture, it's Christ who completes us. The other day I went to see the uh, Lego Batman movie, which I highly recommend. It's pretty awesome. Whether you're a Batman fan or not. But there is one scene which is quite, in some ways it's quite funny. But um, there's one scene where he essentially, he saves the world right at the beginning. He comes back to his Batcave and he's kind of completely alone. And he's still got his Bat mask on. It's kind of a... Um, it's kind of it, it, it pays homage to Batman, but yeah, at the front, in the same time, kind of makes fun of it as well in a in a in a really 
good way though. Uh, and there's one scene right at the beginning where he's in this, because remember, Batman's rich, he's got his own mansion and stuff, and he's, uh, Lego Batman is in this mansion, and he's got his own private cinema screening, and he's sitting there alone, eating his popcorn with his Batman mask on, and he's watching uh, a scene from a film called Jerry Maguire, which I've never seen, I don't think it's, maybe I'd recommend seeing it, but there is a famous line in which we see, I think it's Tom Cruise speaking to René Zellweger, where he says, you complete me. And then at which point, Batman cracks up laughing. Um, but it's, it's and, and you're kind of like, you know, kind of making fun of the film, but it, it's, it is something which is easily believed in the world, which is this, if I just have this one person, they will complete me. If I just meet this perfect person, they will complete me. And the problem is, that was never meant to be. That was never God's intention. And the problem is, when you get into that point where person A meets person B, and they're like, hey, you need to complete me. And then person B is like, hey, you need to complete me. At some point, either one is going to fail the other, because guess what? We're not that great. We're not that perfect. And we cannot fill that gap which was meant for God. We cannot bring that kind of meaning and that which you idolise, I've often heard said, well, that which you idolise, you will eventually demonise. Eventually that person will not complete you because only God can complete you. And then at that point, you're left in that position where you then begin to doubt the relationship, you begin to become distant from the relationship, and then you begin to think, oh, maybe they won't complete me, but maybe this person can complete me. Or, oh, actually that person, they're pretty cool, maybe they could complete me. And it's amazing, that is completely contrary to scripture, that's completely contrary to the Bible, but it's, a, it's an easy thing we can get into this mindset of, if only I had this, if only I had this, and Jesus says, no, no, your completion is not found in this person, or in this thing, or in this role, or in this job, or in this experience, your completeness is found in me. Another one, thinking along those same lines, is this, if you're single, you're somehow less of a person. I think that can be sometimes we can kind of uh, project that in the world as, as around us. And Christ says, no, I, I love you. You're not half a person. You, you are a person and I care for you. I have a purpose for you. And never forget that Jesus himself, Jesus who lived the most purposeful, the most joy-filled, the most perfect, sacrificial, life-giving life, was single. He was never married. He was single. And this gives us, uh, it gives us encouragement because it reminds us not to idolise marriage but also not to demonise marriage. Marriage is a gift and marriage is beautiful and Christ has it for a purpose but likewise Christ also has a purpose for your time as, in, as a single person. Maximise both for his glory because they are both beautiful, beautiful gifts. We are surrounded by a culture that really does preach the opposite of everything on that list. Think about it, if we were to turn on the TV, how many times would we really, would we really be able to say that we, we saw something which is true? That we saw something which is honourable or just or pure or lovely? When we turn on the radio, do we really hear things which we can say are those things or commendable or of excellence or praiseworthy? Often we see the world completely preaching the complete opposite of those things. And yet, it is in some ways also amazing because when we take each and every point, we find it perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is true and Jesus is honourable and Jesus is just 
and Jesus is pure, he is lovely, he is commendable, he is excellent and he is worthy of praise. So think about those things and think about Jesus. And then Paul ends bringing kind of this section kind of to a close. He says this in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What you have learned, received, heard and seen in Paul, practice these things. Don't just retain knowledge but by the power of the Holy Spirit live these things out. Yes, the the call is great. But God doesn't leave us to do it on our own. He's the one who not only calls us, but then he empowers us to live it out. And imagine, think about how different our lives would be if we began to live out these things that we looked at today. Imagine if we were to stand firm in the Lord. If we were to seek to love each other as family. To work together for the sake of of the gospel, to rejoice in the Lord always, to be content in all situations, to not be anxious but rather to fight anxiety with prayer and to think, to meditate upon that which is pure, that which is honourable and that which is true. But in closing, above all these things, And that which is really the foundation of all these things that he calls us to, these beautiful things, the foundation is this, that we would believe and that we would receive the gospel. It is the gospel that they have learnt from Paul. It is the gospel that they have received from Paul. It is the gospel that they have heard from Paul and the gospel they have seen in Paul. And what is this gospel? And that word gospel means good news. The good news is that God himself loves us so much that he became a man. (coughs) He laid down his life on the cross. He took upon himself the punishment that we deserved so that by faith in Jesus we could be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God for all eternity. He then rose again offering us new life and this is the gospel. Believe it, accept it, receive it and practice it. And on this day, let us celebrate and remember what true love is when the world around us is celebrating that which is counterfeit to true love, that which is a distortion on true love, let us celebrate the true love that Christ has for us. Let us remember what true love is, and this is love. In 1 John 3:16, we read this. By this, we know love. If you want to know love, this is where you've got to come to. By this we know love 
that he, being that is Jesus, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus has laid down his life for us. That is the greatest act, the greatest demonstration and the greatest love that we can ever experience. And as we accept that love, as we believe in that love, as we trust and learn from that love, as we grab hold of that love that Christ had for us when he died on the cross for us, he, it then empowers us that very love which we hold on to, which we, which, we, which we find in Christ, is then that which empowers us to love each other. As we experience that love vertically from God, we are then empowered to then live that out horizontally. So let me end with that one more time and then we'll close in prayer. But this, sorry, by this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Let us pray together. And Father, I want to thank you. I thank you for this great love that you have showed us and this great love that you have demonstrated towards us. That you loved us so much that you chose to enter the suffering of our world to to bear the judgment and the scorn and the suffering that we deserved so that we could be reconciled to you. And Father, I thank you that you offer that gift and we can receive that gift simply by putting our faith and trust in you. As we repent of our sin, we turn from our sin, we acknowledge we're sinful people and we come before you and say, Lord, I am a sinner, forgive me, I accept your gift on the cross. I believe that you died for me, that you rose again for me. You ascended into heaven for me and you desire a relationship with me, Lord. Lord, I thank you for that gift and I accept that gift by faith. And Lord, for those of us who haven't accepted that gift, may we make that decision today. And for those of us who have, Lord, may you then empower us to live this life that you call us to. We've looked at a number of different things, a number of different things that you encourage us to live out and, and the means and the means is always and ultimately found in you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, we, we, we receive the call and the call is great. But Lord, we pray Lord, that you would empower us to live out that call. That we would stand firm, that we would rejoice always, that we would not be anxious, that we would meditate on that which is true and pure, that we would labour together for the sake of the gospel. So Lord, we know the call is great, but Holy Spirit, empower us and enable us to live that out. And may we never forget the promise when in those moments when we're like, Lord, I, when we're like, Lord, I don't mean I can live it out. Those are the moments where you say, I know you can't live it out, but I can live it out through you. And that beautiful verse that we've read, that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It is through you, Lord, that we can live out the call that you give us. And that's the beauty. You give us this call, but then you also give us the means to live it out. So uh, help us to remember these things, help us to meditate on these things, help us to live out and put these things into practice, Lord. 
And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us on this day, on this day, Valentine's Day, when, when unfortunately the world in, in, in many places use it as an opportunity to sin, Lord, but I thank you that we could use it as an opportunity to seek you, that we could use it as an opportunity to gather together, to be in your word, to be reminded of a greater love, the greatest love that we can ever experience is in you, Lord. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live this out. That, we tr- that you, Jesus, would truly be enough for us, Lord. That we would remember, Lord, that you are enough. That we would come to you constantly in, in the good times and the bad, Lord. That we would remember that, Jesus, you are enough. And may people see our lives and may they see that truth in, in how we speak, in what we say, in how we live. That beautiful truth that Jesus is enough. Lord, May you keep us safe as we go home and help us to meditate on these things, Lord, to to continue to think upon these things, to meet with you, to talk with you. And Lord, may you help us and empower us to live these things out. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.